Luke 16, verses 1 through 13. Now he was also saying to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management, for you can no longer be manager. The manager said to himself, What shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me. I am not strong enough to dig. I am ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do. So that when I'm removed from management, people will welcome me into their homes. And he summoned each one of his master's debtors. And he began saying to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, How much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. And his master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. The sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the ongoing ministry of Your Word to our hearts, our minds, our souls. Pray that we would be attentive this morning, that You would give us ears to hear, that Your Word would be implanted deep in our souls. For some, perhaps, this being even the morning of salvation. For others, an ongoing refining in their walk with You, a greater and deeper appreciation for what You have done, in a time of instruction as we contemplate our appropriate response. Teach us all this day, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We really can learn from everyone around us. Jesus illustrates this beautifully in this notoriously difficult parable in Luke 16. With the very briefest of segues, in 16 verse 1, we read, Now he was also saying to his disciples. And with that line, we move from one of the most beloved parables of all time in Luke 15, that parable that is usually noted as being the parable of the prodigal son, even though that might be a misnomer. It might not be the best title for it. But we move from that parable now to a parable that is often ignored and neglected. This is surely due because the way that this parable goes and the conclusion of the parable seems quite odd. How is it possible, after this story is told, that Jesus can say that this master would somehow rejoice in what had happened? That he would give praise to the unrighteous steward? Our moral compass steers us away from that sort of conclusion. We can't quite get how that could be possible. I mean, wouldn't this master be angry? He's just been cheated out of money. How can this master respond in this way? 
There's other, than, other questions that have arisen over history regarding this parable as well. Some have wondered, who is the master in the parable? Some have asked, who is the steward? Those who have tried to push towards allegorical interpretations of this parable have asked those questions. And there's been no shortage of ideas as to who are represented by these characters. In the words that follow the parable, what does Jesus mean when he says, tells us to use unrighteous wealth in gaining friends that will receive us into eternal dwellings? What does it mean to be entrusted with true wealth? There's several questions that are brought to our minds. Again, context is going to be the big help to us in answering these questions. There's a very careful connection that we're going to see together between the parable and Jesus' following words. It's important that whenever we come to conclusions regarding what Jesus is saying, that we also come to proper conclusions about what Jesus is not saying. You see, every metaphor, every kind of piece of figurative language has some sort of comparison that's being utilized. But these similes, these metaphors, these analogies break down at some point. Figurative language is helpful in giving us maybe new perspective or new insight into a particular truth. But we always have to recognize that there are limits that will guard us from wrongful comparisons and wrongful applications. It's kind of like the art of learning in whenever a teacher is making use of figurative language or making use of metaphors and analogies is making sure that you make as many connections as he intends, but not to go further than the intention of those connections. And this is always important, but it becomes especially obvious in an example where an unrighteous man's actions are being highlighted. And considering the implications of this parable, people wonder, is Jesus advocating immoral actions here? Is he holding up to us an unrighteous, wicked, dishonest manager for us to learn from? How could that be? Shouldn't just justice fall upon this guy? Certainly Jesus isn't encouraging us to work in underhanded ways. He couldn't be exhorting us to mishandle someone else's assets and then defraud them out of selfish concern. Well, just so those questions don't float around for very long, let me put your fears to rest. He most certainly is not encouraging dishonest behavior. Neither this text nor the rest of Scripture advocate such a thing. But once we've said that's not what he's saying, it would also be unacceptable for us to go, well, that's not what he's saying and we're done. <laughs> what is Jesus saying? What is Jesus' point? We don't want to leave that to some ambiguity. So what is he saying? There's an example to be learned from this man. And there are some commentators that would say that the only example to be learned from this man is a negative one. This man is just full of negative lessons. Some argue even that Jesus, in the words following this parable, is using some sort of ironic or sarcastic humor, amounting to something like this. Go ahead and do what the dishonest manager did. Use your money. Make as many friends as you can for as long as you can. Just see if they'll be able to help you when the time of judgment comes. Now, if that's the case, if that's the way that those words are supposed to be read, then it means everything about this manager is just negative. The entire thing is negative. There is nothing positive to be learned from this man. In other words, not only his mismanagement of resources that leads to his being dismissed, but also his less than forthright actions to secure himself a lodging after being terminated are also being put forward for us to learn what not to do. But Jesus, I believe here in this text, wishes for us to learn something positive from this man's actions as well. 
Surely his squandering of possessions is not to be followed, nor his alterations of his master's contracts. But the shrewdness with which he operated is something that brings up a question for us to consider. And here it is. Do we, as children of God, act with similar prudence, similar wisdom, similar shrewdness? We're called in the Scriptures to be innocent as doves, but simultaneously called to be as shrewd as serpents. Our shrewdness will take on a very different form, and there will be a very much different goal or end in our minds. But are those of the world more shrewd about temporary fleeting things than we are regarding eternal matters? That's the comparison Jesus is trying to make here. This is the flow of his argument. He's going from a lesser to greater examination. He's saying, if it is the case for those who are without God and without hope in the world, who think that this is all there is, and they can exercise such shrewdness, such wisdom, such prudence regarding their own situation and the limited time they have, how much more should the children of God be wise concerning the time we have, knowing that there's eternal rewards following this life. What Jesus is highlighting is an absurdity that is found far too often among Christians. That we're the ones not being wise concerning the limited time that we've been granted and the limited resources that we've been given. Jesus' followers should use their time and money for spiritual purposes with more wisdom, with more prudence, with more shrewdness than the children of of this world use those same possessions for material aims. In other words, there is a positive lesson to be learned from this shrewd businessman. I actually want to point out three lessons that we can learn from this shrewd businessman this morning. The first is this. Temporary stewardship can be used to secure lifelong friends. A temporary stewardship, a temporary servanthood, a temporary responsibility can be used to secure, to make for ourselves, lifelong friends. Or maybe better said, everlasting friends. Consider the parable. Jesus introduces us here to a rich man and a steward. Now, immediately we're told that there were accusations that were brought to the owner, to this rich man, regarding the steward. He's being told that this steward is squandering his master's possessions. Now, that word is a verbal connection to the previous parable. It's the exact same word utilized to describe the prodigal son's actions in squandering his inheritance. Same word. So, you hear this manager is being accused before the owner, before the rich man, of having squandered the rich man's possessions. Now, the evidence must have been super, super clear because we don't see anything of an investigation unless it just left off from us. But the guy immediately goes to the steward and says, you're out of a job. Get together the accounts. And not only that, but the steward offers no defense. <laughs> There's no, 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 it's not actually that way. There's no attempt at actually defending his actions. We're not told the specifics of what the actual offense was was, but the evidence must have been very, very plain and clear. And so this man 
the steward begins reasoning within himself, what am I going to do? The master's removing his stewardship from him, and he knew the jig was up. He knew his goose was cooked, and he wasn't going to just stick his head in the sand and hope and pretend that the danger would just go away. He's going to lose his income. In this case, he's also going to lose his residence, his place of livelihood, his entire life is right on the verge of complete collapse. So he considered, what must I do considering this crisis that I'm up against? And as he thought about this in his mind, he realized that he had a couple of problems. One is a physiological one. He says, I'm unable to dig. He says, I'm too weak for manual labor. I've been a white-collar worker all my life. I'm not about to start a blue-collar job. He doesn't possess the physical stamina to do hard manual labor. He says, I cannot dig. He has a physiological problem. He also has a psychological problem because he's unwilling to beg. He's too proud to ask for handouts. He's lost his job, but he's not about to lose his dignity. So he's unable to dig, and he's unwilling to beg. And these two problems confront him as he contemplates in his mind and reasons within himself, what am I going to do? And then it hits him. Eureka! He finds an idea. And in the closing moments of his stewardship, he prepares an exit plan. So he hurriedly calls in all of his master's debtors. We're told one by one. And he begins to reduce their bills. Now the particular thing that's being described here is interesting He's asking them to tell them how much they owe, and then he pulls out their contracts, their debts, and has them blot out the numbers and rewrite them. It was typical for debts like these to be written on wax tablets, because then as the person would start to pay it off, it would be changed over time. They would blot it out the wax, and they would re-etch in the wax what the actual debt was. The steward's plan becomes clear. He's going to allow these debtors to rewrite their debts with this gracious reduction in the amount that they owe. So a man who owes 100 baths of oil, by the way, which is around 800 gallons of oil, about the production of 150 olive trees is what's being spoken of here, typically around three years' worth of salary, his debt is being reduced to 50. In modern language, it's like being reduced a year and a half of your salary. That, that debt being removed. A man who owes 100 cores of wheat translates to around 1,000 bushels, about the yield of 100 acres. This is a much larger debt, around 10 years' worth of salary. His debt is reduced to 80. Interesting, the reduction in debt is about the same as a per- percentage of, his, of the total value of the debt. In other words, both men get about one and a half to two years off of their indebtedness. We're told the reason for this action, he wants to make friends. And he's going to make these friends feel indebted to him for his kindness. And then once he's kicked out of his stewardship, out of his house, they'll be there waiting to provide him with lodging. He knew that his master would never trust him again. So he has nothing to lose with his master. And meanwhile, he has everything to gain by befriending these debtors and making them feel like now... They're in his debt. When the master finds out what's happened, 
he can do nothing but marvel at the unrighteous steward's cleverness. He has no real recourse because the steward was still acting as his steward. He had the right to do these things. He was still acting in the master's place when he rewrote these debts. But how could the owner approve of what seemed to be a dishonest act? This is where the rub comes for a lot of people. How could he still say these things? So as a result, as you can only imagine, over the time this parable has been interpreted, there have been some that have put forward some positive spins on the steward's action. And it goes something like this. Exodus 22, Leviticus 25, Deuteronomy 23, all three passages that speak against the Jews being able to exact usury or interest on loans to other Jewish people. They were prohibited from taking money in this way from fellow Jews by the law. But, there were some that said, well, this doesn't make much sense. I mean, I think God's intention with that, I think the spirit of the law was to prevent this usury from being used to exploit the poor. But maybe for good business reasons, we might want to enact an agreement with one another in which I let you use something of mine and I get some profit from that as a result. But we can't put usury, we can't put interest on the books. So what would they do? Well, maybe to make this a mutually beneficial transaction, what would be allowed is the adding of interest into the debt from the very beginning. So, in other words, it's never seen as being interest in the, in the long run, but it's been put in there from the very, very beginning. If this was the case, as this theory goes, what the steward in this parable is doing is he's just removing the interest portion from those debts. If this is the case, what makes it all the more interesting is if the owner wanted to take exception with this, he'd have to admit that interest had been placed onto each and every one of those loans. In other words, he's been outsmarted, and this guy has done something. So what does he do in the face of that situation? He just commends the steward. At least maybe he can gain a reputation for himself for being a forgiving owner. Maybe it would appear that the owner didn't know about the interest, and therefore he's just praising this cancellation. Well, I guess it's possible. The text itself doesn't describe anything specifically that way. And perhaps the biggest problem that besets this sort of interpretation is what the steward is called after all this is done. In verse 8, you'll note with me, the master prays the unrighteous manager. Some have translated that dishonest manager. Now, if this man had already been this, I'm sure the master wouldn't have allowed him any time to concoct a plan to enact it. And it seems that Jesus is making use of this very fact when he talks in the next following verses of unrighteous wealth to make this lesser to greater argument to those who are his disciples. And this is what I would just say. is No matter what, this guy is no moral exemplar. He's called unrighteous. He's squandered his master's resources. And the point is this. Instead of being hung up about this, Jesus isn't making a big point about what his actions were there. The whole point that he's making is his cleverness. It's his shrewdness. So if we don't interpret it that way, we interpret it this way. That the steward's actions were absolutely at the master's expense. Obviously, in this action, he acts in his own self-interest. He's not acting because he thinks this will be better for his master. He's concerned about his own skin. So he's acting to try to provide for himself after he's been kicked out of the house. 
The unrighteous steward is commended for his expediency, not his, dis, not his dishonesty. The master's praise is merely that he had been outsmarted because this guy was able to do something before he was kicked out of his job. Now, just let me ask you this. We can identify with this. There are no small amount of movies that depict these sorts of situations, right? Like bank robberies and stuff of this nature, where these guys are involved in something dishonest and wrong. They should be brought to justice. And meanwhile, we ourselves as the audience are intrigued by the amount of sophisticated planning and plotting and scheming that went in to the very act. You might read this in the news. You might see it on TV or in a movie. I was talking with Randy this week about this passage, and he uh, brought to my mind the movie Catch Me If You Can. It was made in 2002. It was based on the life of Frank Abagnale, who before his 19th birthday performed, successfully performed cons worth millions of dollars. He posed as a pilot, he posed as a doctor, and he posed as a prosecutor. And the big primary crime that he gets caught on is check fraud. And he got millions of dollars for himself through these fraudulent checks. The FBI eventually caught him and then turned him into an investigator to find other cases of check uh, forgery. Abagnale engaged in huge amounts of duplicity, but you cannot help, as you're watching that movie, not admiring the guy's cleverness, his ability to think on his feet. And I think it's a very, very similar thing that Jesus is doing here. He's saying, this guy can't help, but note this man's cleverness. The master is praising the steward for his shrewdness in using his master's money to invest in relationships with people with his own immediate future in mind. Now, how does Jesus then connect this? Well, he gives us a lesson in verse 9. He says, I say to you, make friends for yourselves by the means of the wealth of unrighteousness, or worldly wealth, so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. Jesus' point of comparison here is to call us to emulate the steward's wisdom by handling our master's resources with eternity in mind. The point is that everyone's stewardship will one day come to an end. And we will all be called to an accounting for how we have utilized everything that God has entrusted to us. Just as the steward had to to act immediately, so must we. Because when time's up, it's up. So the steward moved quickly. He was expedient. He took decisive action. There was no time to lose. And isn't it amazing, I'm sure you've encountered some of these moments in your own life, when there's a deadline approaching, how quickly and decisively and fast someone can act to get something done. The question is, do we live like this in light of the coming deadline that we all have with the Lord? Do we realize that our time here on earth is fleeting? Do we recognize the resources that God has given to us, has entrusted us as stewards? What Jesus instructs us to do here is this. He says, use worldly wealth strategically. Use it as a tool. For what purpose? For the kingdom of God's purpose. He says, just as the steward made friends... We should make friends such that they will receive us into eternal dwellings. Now, who's the they here? These friends. Who are the they will receive us into eternal dwellings? 
There have been some who have argued that this is the same sort of thing that happens in Genesis. The we portions of Genesis, the plurals of majesty, where this plural term is used, but it's really just all a reference to God. And so some, some say this is just a reference to God, that God will receive us into eternal dwellings. I think it's better, though, understood here as a reference to the lives that we might impact in a significant way through the use of resources that God has given to us right now. Our prayers, our service, our time, our finances should all rebound to the benefit of others, to the glory of God. Have you heard the song, Thank You? That was a famous song from several years ago. But in that song, it pictures, uh, the singer pictures meeting people in heaven who express their thankfulness for how their life on earth had impacted them and had led to their salvation. Some through the giving of money and offerings and an offering plate at a church, which ministered to someone all the way across the world. Others by teaching Sunday school class and having shared the gospel that this person came to know the Lord. But each time we give to the Lord's work, there is a sense in which we can dream of meeting in heaven the precious people whom God will reach through those resources. So the point of comparison would be this. Just as the shrewd manager contemplated friends after his stewardship was over, so ought we consider eternal friendships in relationship to our earthly, temporary stewardship. What are we doing with what God has given us now to secure friends for all eternity? And there really is a real sense. We had this read in Matthew 25, in which service that's done to the least of men is ultimately service done unto our King. Right? He received that as unto Him anyway. And notice Jesus says here, do this so that when it fails, in other words, when worldly wealth fails, it's not a, ma- it's not a matter of if, it's only a matter of when. It's only a matter of time. Randy Alcorn says, Jesus gives us a powerful incentive to invest our lives and assets in His kingdom while on earth. The greater our service and sacrifice for Him and for others, the larger and more enthusiastic our welcoming committee will be in heaven. The more eternal residences we'll have the opportunity to visit, and the more substantial our own places in heaven will be. What a picture, what a glimpse this is to imagine that all those whom the Lord has allowed you by His grace, all those lives you've been able to touch through time, service, talents, resources, money, that this would somehow form some sort of greeting committee as we make our homecoming to where is our real home, heaven, the new heavens and the new earth. We should give more attention to eternal souls than businessmen give to earthly business. That's an interesting question to ask. For all of us, I'm sure we're all engaged in many tasks throughout every day. But do you give more attention to souls than you do to earthly matters? Or is it the other way around? J.C. Ryle said this, The diligence of worldly men about the things of time should put to shame the coldness of professing Christians about the things of eternity. The zeal and swiftness of men of business in traveling land and sea to get earthly treasures may well reprove the slackness and lethargy of believers about treasures in heaven. What is being made? Is there people go to huge lengths to amass for themselves earthly treasures? To what lengths do Christians go to amass heavenly treasures? Are they putting us to shame? Is the business world around us putting Christianity to shame? 
Jesus is saying, it's ridiculous that this guy shows more shrewdness than the children of light do in regards to matters of time and resources. A second lesson we can learn, though, is that temporary stewardship is the proving grounds for an enduring possession. This temporary responsibility, this temporary stewardship of resources given to us by God is the proving grounds for an enduring possession. An enduring possession. In the parable, the steward's mismanagement of his master's resources brought with it severe consequences. He was called to an accounting and he was shown to be involved in malpractice. He had squandered his master's resources so that he would be removed from his position and he's going to be kicked out of his master's house. His misuse of his master's resources meant that he forfeited future blessing. And his lack of faithfulness with his master's possessions was further seen in his actions even after or leading up to his dismissal. What we see in this man is this. Given any more amount of time, given opportunity, his unrighteousness just finds more expression in the last days of his job. He was already mismanaging funds and given even just a few more moments, he schemes and plots to his own master's detriment in the last days of his job. What lesson is Jesus wanting to communicate to us here? Well, look at verses 10 through 12. Jesus says, He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? I recognize this. Inherent to the Christian life is stewardship. The principle of stewardship. Now, sadly, that term, because it's probably been so misused by even Christians today, has kind of given this distorted understanding of what that is. It's been used to make fundraising sound spiritual in many places. We're not asking for your money. We're just asking for stewardship. We're just in a stewardship campaign. And I think what it has done is that word has almost been given just an overall bad taste into people's mouths. They associate it with an organization's tactic to get money. If I say, we're going to be going into a stewardship campaign or into a stewardship series, a series on stewardship, a lot of people start backing away very quickly. And there are times when we might say, well, that word has now been so put into the mud that it's not worth fighting for. Let's just leave it and grab another word that's better and we'll just forget trying to recapture its meaning. But I think in this case, this is a word that we ought to restore a proper meaning to because it's important both historically as well as biblically. A steward is someone entrusted with another person's wealth or property and charged with the responsibility of managing that property, that wealth, in the master's best interests. Not his own, in the owner's best best interests. His ultimate goal is to be found faithfully managing the resources that have been allotted to him. He recognizes that they are not his own. He doesn't own them. He's been entrusted with them for a period of time and he's supposed to manage them and to utilize them to his master's benefit. 
The reason why we need to recapture this term is because stewardship is not merely a small portion of the Christian life. It truly is the Christian life. As Christians, we recognize that God has entrusted everything we have to us to be used to His glory. That includes our time, our talents, our money, our possessions, you name it. Search throughout the Scriptures. You will not find a verse throughout the Bible where God has said, I surrender ownership to you. It's now all yours. God didn't die and leave everything here to us. He owns everything. And He maintains His ownership. Here's just a few smattering of verses on the issue. Deuteronomy 10.14 Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heaven and earth and all that is in it. Leviticus 25.23 The land, moreover, shall not be sold permanently. Why does the Lord say this, Israel? You won't sell the land permanently? For the land is mine, God says. You are but aliens and sojourners with me. We had read... This morning from First Chronicles 29, and Justin let out here this morning. Listen to how the very first word, it's a possessive. Yours, O Lord. Yours, what is, what is His? What is yours? Is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth is whose? Yours. It's God's. Job 41.11 who has given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine, declares the Lord. Psalm 24.1 The earth is the Lord's and all it contains. Psalm 50, verse 10 through 12 Every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains, everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you, for the world is mine. Haggai 2.8 the silver is mine. The gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. Even ourselves. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Here's the principle. God owns everything. We're just stewards. So what is a steward to do? A steward is to be faithful with what he or she has been entrusted. For what purpose? The purpose that Jesus gives here is this. That you might be entrusted with something better. You be faithful with what I've given you, says the Lord, so I might give you something better. Jesus is indicating here that if we handle God's property well on earth, we're going to be given our own in heaven. As disciples of Christ, we need to make use of our time, privilege, and wealth, not for the present, but with a view to a future accounting. Remember that all this stuff is not ours anyway. It all belongs to God. Don't store up treasures on earth, but store up treasures in heaven. Jesus explains, if you can't be trusted with someone else's stuff, you won't get any of your own. Now, that kind of seems a little bit backward to us, doesn't it? I mean, don't we normally think the other way around, like, Okay, if you're not good with your own stuff, I'm not lending my stuff to you. Like, that's the way we would normally think of this, right? That makes sense to us. But from God's perspective, that doesn't. Because it's all His. The point that God is making is this. If you can't use that which I've entrusted to you for this short period of time in a way that honors me, then you're not getting anything later. 
the enduring true treasure which the Lord gives is that which is given in heaven, that which will not be taken away. So how we act as stewards now has an impact on what responsibilities will be given to us in eternity. It's crazy that they're described here as being our own. As our own. Look at verse 12. If you've not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? These heavenly gifts are called our own because our enjoyment of them will be everlasting. There will be no parting from them. Eternal life is the only property which endures forever. Everything else is on loan from God to us and may be withdrawn by Him at any time. Right? Job's response, because the Lord is given, the Lord is taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. How is he able to respond to that that way? Because he knows that God owns everything. Isn't it incredible how understanding the sovereignty of God and His ownership impacts the way we interact with difficulty and trial? If I understand that it's all His anyway, then He can take away it whenever He wants. And He also can give whenever He wants. Perhaps a good illustration of this principle comes to us from our own families. You might reason with your son or your daughter, if you can't handle my gun properly, you're not going to get your own. If you can't drive this car responsibly, we're not buying you your own. Right? We understand that principle with our own families. If you can't make use of what I have provided for you and allowed you to borrow, then we're not going to be going and giving you your own. God says similarly, if you can't make use of these resources under this short, fleeting set of moments in a way that honors me, then that will have consequences in eternity. I find it also fascinating in these words that Jesus describes money, wealth, and possessions as a least thing. Verse 11, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will trust true riches to you. Look at verse 10. He was faithful in very little things. is faithful also much. He was unrighteous in a very little thing. is unrighteous also in much. It's easy for us to think of wealth and possessions and money as a massive thing. But you see, it really is just a matter of perspective. In the light of eternity, the wealth that, in God, that God entrusts to us here is a very, very small thing. But how you handle that very, very small thing has massive implications for the life to come. Shouldn't we, who know that this stuff is all fleeting, going to pass away, things that moth and rust can destroy and thieves can break in and steal, shouldn't we be setting the standard as it relates to the way that we relate to things of this world? I mean, if we know that all this stuff will ultimately fail, but heavenly riches will last forever, shouldn't our lives depict that reality? Jesus attaches also to this the explanation that He who is faithful in little will be faithful in much. That principle is well established in life, in the business world. You don't hire somebody for a more expansive, bigger responsibility if they can't handle a smaller responsibility, Right? They don't just all of a sudden magically go, oh, now I'm going to become responsible because you've given me more. You, you see if they can handle this amount of responsibility, and if they can, and they are good with it, they're faithful with it, then you entrust to them more. In other words, we need to be diligent in, in, in faithful stewardship no matter how much we have. Whether you've give, been given $10 or $100,000, you're going to be held accountable for how you utilize what you've been given. 
You ever find yourself saying something along these lines? I'll be the first to admit it. If only I had such and such money, then I would give. If only I won the lottery, then I'd give. Well, actually, what you would do is best indicated by what you are presently doing. What you're doing now says more about what you would do than anything else. If you're selfish with the use of a few dollars, I'll tell you what you do when you get a million. You'll be selfish with it too. What we do with a little time, a little talent, and a little money communicates volumes about us. Here's the principle. Remember, God owns everything, right? So it doesn't matter how much you have. It's a question of how you use what you've been given. It's all God's. It's just a matter of what you have done with what God has entrusted to you. In fact, being given more just increases the amount of responsibility you have before God. So you be careful next time you start praying for raises and more money and more stuff. Because the more you have, the more you're responsible before God regarding. A third lesson that can be learned from the steward is this. Temporary stewardship manifests who your master really is. Temporary stewardship manifests who your master really is. Again, look at the parable. The steward's behavior makes plain who it is that he really serves. His concern was not that he do right by his master. His interest was in his own skin. Because it's not until all of a sudden his job is on the line and his lifestyle is being threatened that all of a sudden this guy springs into action. And you see his cleverness come out onto center stage. His job's being taken away. And now we get a glimpse into what really motivates this man. It's his stuff. He's concerned about his lifestyle. And he'll do just about anything to make sure that he doesn't suffer need. Luke 16.13, Jesus says, No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying that your affections, your attitudes, and your actions demonstrate the master whom you really serve. And you can't serve two. One will ultimately hold your heart. Now, there are many who live in denial of this. Many deceive themselves into believing that they can serve God and money at the same time. But Jesus disallows such a position. There can be only one. Wealth and possessions serve us as a fantastic litmus test. It exposes our true spiritual condition. You guys know what a litmus test is, right? I had chemistry class this year and did a study on pH, and we used pH litmus test paper and did some of that together in class. I've had, we've had a pool over the years. Right now it's in severe disrepair. But the, uh, I'm always amazed by the procedures that you can go through to test the water. I remember always you know, getting little samples and dropping little drops into them, but now they've got it even better. You just take these test strips, you just like dunk it in the water right out, and in five seconds there's like five little pads, and they'll tell you hardness and alkalinity and chlorine levels and pH levels. And it's all super, super quick. I mean, they even have digital tests now that do it. But if you just looked at the pool water, you'd have no idea whether it's safe to swim in it or not. 
It could be super highly chlorinated and burn your skin and eyes and all the rest, and you would have no clue as to what's going on in that water without the litmus tests. After the test is done, appropriate actions can be taken. You see, you might not know where your heart is apart from some litmus tests. And it's very gracious of God to provide them for us. Let's not rail against these. Let's not you know, put up defense measures and say, I don't want to even deal with this. It is a gracious provision of God that He makes statements like these. Because what He's doing is He's providing a heart test for us. One of the big heart tests that we can see here is our interaction with the world's goods. Does our budget, our checkbook, our credit card bill, our debts, our wallet say something about the values of the kingdom of God? Or do they say something else? Because the truth is, the way we spend our finances says a whole lot about what we really treasure what we really value. Would your finances screen priorities that God would be pleased with? Do you conduct periodic reviews of your finances to ensure that biblical priorities and a heavenly perspective is manifest? If we were to put up on the screen behind me, one by one, all of our financial situations, how many of us would cringe when we got to levels like, how much are we giving to the Lord's work? Here's a question. If your spending patterns were compared to a non-Christian's, would there be an appreciable difference? Non-Christian, Christian. If your finances were to be brought out in front of, in front of both, would there be a big difference between the way you spend money and the way that a non-Christian spends money? And if not, there's a problem, isn't there? If not, we need to repent and ask the Lord for forgiveness. To ask Him to give us a passion and vision for His kingdom and the advance of the glorious news of the gospel both here in our community and all over the world. We need to begin storing up treasures in heaven. We need to begin making eternal friends. That phrase, BFF, best friends forever. Well, here's how you make a real forever friend. In the proclamation of the gospel. Certainly part of that is the way in which we use our finances. Not just that, our time and talents, everything else is also included. But here's the point that Jesus is making. If you do not master your money by using it for the glory of God, it will master you. Either you will master money for the glory of God, or money will master you. And you'll be bankrupt for eternity. I remember reading Randy Elkhorn's book on money, possession, and eternity. It's fantastic. It's a pretty thick, small writing book, but I really highly recommend it to you. Always remember the illustration he used. I've shared this with the church before. But can you imagine if you were in the South during the Civil War, but you know that the South is about to be beaten, how much Confederate money would you want? And the answer is, just enough. Just enough so you could... Get some food for those last fleeting days. Everything else you'd want in union currency, right? Because after that, it's going to be worthless. Burned. Not worth anything. Similarly, if you knew that you were going to die tomorrow, how much would millions and millions of dollars mean to you? But instead, if we've stored them up as treasures in heaven, then there will be great and marvelous rewards to come. You see, people are either getting one step, every day is either a step closer towards their treasures, or every day is a step away from 
their treasures. Which will it be for you? Here's some good tests that Philip Ryken offers. Does, ask these questions when you go about buying things. Does this purchase reflect the ultimate, my ultimate spiritual priorities? Does it take adequate account for the world's need for the gospel? Is that in my mind? Do I think, is this a good purchase in light of the need that the world has for the gospel? Is this the way I would spend my money if Jesus were right here with me right now? And guess what? He is with you. So, uh, but what, if you're there staring over your shoulder as you were making the purchase, would you go, oh, maybe I don't need to buy that? Is this an expense that will seem like a good investment in light of eternity? How many things, okay, we can all admit to this one. How many things have you bought and like a month later it's broken down, it's at the junkyard, right? And it was the best thing ever. How many pieces of technology have we bought at high prices and they've just been outdated within a year and we want the newest thing and the better thing? The point that I'm making is not that you can't buy anything. The point that I am making is recognize that you're a steward and the resources that you have, you will give an accounting for. Where's a good place to start? Well, a good place to start is to begin tithing to Christian work. Imagine what good the church could do locally and abroad if Christians increased their giving to even Old Testament levels. Do you know what the average percentage of giving is among evangelicals in the United States of America? you know what the average? This is among evangelicals, people who profess the gospel. Okay? The average giving, evangelicals within churches, less than 2% of their annual earnings, or right around 2%. So in one of the most affluent societies in all of human history, our giving is lower than Old Testament standards. There's a lot of people that make a big deal about tithing the Old Testament. That's an Old Testament thing. Here's my question for you. So now that we're in a day of grace, we do less than the people did under the law? There's a problem. Now I know when you start talking about things like this, besides stepping on everyone's toes, including my own, one of the things that comes up is, well, here we are now. How do I get towards those kinds of situations? Well, you start by sitting down and prayerfully repenting of misuse of resources and asking the Lord to give you joy in giving towards that which brings with it eternal rewards. How many of us are growing in the grace of sacrificial giving to Jesus who gave His own life for our sins? We have to recognize that it is that it's not our money. It's God's. It's all God's. And once you understand that, and you understand that you're just a money manager for God, money then takes its proper place. God is in His proper place, and you'll be in your proper place as well. Alcorn says, In the day that we stand before our Master and Maker, it will not matter how many people on earth knew our name, how many called us great, and how many considered us fools. It will not matter whether schools and hospitals were named after us, whether our estate was large or small, whether our funeral drew 10,000 people or no one. It will not matter what the newspapers or history books said or didn't say. What will matter is one thing and one thing only, what the Master thinks of us. So we have a lot to learn from even a dishonest, wasteful businessman. We can learn from the expediency of many in our world as they wholeheartedly pursue temporary treasures. We have so much the more reason to pursue that which matters in eternity, which will never be taken away from us. 
You see, unlike this shrewd manager who worked only for himself, we're called to work with wisdom for the glory of God and the benefit of others. And this, coincidentally, will also mean the greatest happiness for us as well. We're to work with all of our might with God's best interest in mind. Yet, as we consider this, you know what I come to grips with? Is that I utterly fail this test. I'm more like this unrighteous manager than I would like to admit. We've all failed in our stewardship. Even those of us who practice a very careful budget must admit that we're not entirely freed from the charge of unfaithful stewardship. We are all guilty before God, our Master, for having squandered His resources. And just like that man in this parable, we're without words to offer and to utter in our own defense. Knowing that a day is soon coming when God will call in all of the accounts, we need to act with haste. Time will soon be up. But you can't bribe your way to heaven. You won't be able to get there unless you have a friend to invite you into God's home. But there's the rub. All of us are enemies of God. We've all transgressed God's commandments. We're all sinners, and the wages of sin is death. It's a fearful thing for a sinner to fall in the hands of a holy, righteous, angry God. So whatever can we do? Well, we can't do anything. But here's where the good news comes to us. It's not what you can do, but what has already been done by God's gracious provision that gives us hope. There is one who's preparing a place in his Father's mansion for those who repent of their sin and believe in Him. And what makes Him unique is that He always has been on good terms with God. For He's God's own eternal Son. And hallelujah, He's also the friend of sinners. He's qualified to bring sinners into friendship with God because of how He perfectly fulfilled His own stewardship. His affections, His attitudes, His actions all manifested who His Master was, God the Father. And in His earthly sojourn, He secured a great host of everlasting friends by remitting not just some of their debt, but all of it. He didn't merely reduce their sentence, but He took their sentence upon Himself and He wiped their slates completely clean. He offered Himself in their place. You see, rather than scheming for a way to avoid pain and homelessness, Jesus left His home in heaven that He might bring sinners home with Him. He was not too weak to work for them, and He wasn't too proud to even take on the lowest position, emptying Himself and humbling Himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted Him and gave Him the name of every other name. You see, it is this steward, Jesus who not only is the best illustration of servanthood for us, a truly perfect example, utterly worthy of imitation, but also the very means by which we can be granted admission to heaven. All of our stewardship is only a response to Jesus' perfect stewardship. Any friends that greet us on our homecoming day in heaven will ultimately, along with us, give thanks to Jesus Christ, who made a way where there is otherwise... No way at all. We will be granted access into heavenly dwellings because Jesus has befriended us. There is no more glorious lesson for us unrighteous stewards to learn. There is hope for all shrewd, dishonest businessmen, among whom I am one, but only in Jesus, the perfectly faithful steward and friend of sinners. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, 
the truth is all of us fail. When we consider the standard being set, we're all utterly undone. None of us have been faithful in our stewardship. All of us have squandered the resources you have granted us. And with that, there would be then no hope for us. We thank you, Father, that you have provided the faithful steward, the one who is faithful even when we are faithless, and that he fulfilled all perfect righteousness, and he laid down his life to wipe our debt clean. Thank you for the forgiveness that is offered in him. And as we allow Your Word to do a litmus test on our hearts, to show and to expose where we really are, I pray that we would not only be broken and sorrowful over our great misuse of what You've granted, but that You would also inflame our hearts with love and joy as we contemplate how You have fixed the problem for us, a problem which we could not fix ourselves. And may it be out of true gratitude for what Christ has done. May this inflame our hearts. Cause a reprioritization of our lives. So the way we use our time and talents and resources and money. Lord, may there be an ever-growing sense in our hearts and minds where we're thinking of eternity. These moments are so quickly going to be gone. And what will there be to show for our lives, the lives you granted us? Lord, thank you for Jesus. Jesus, thank you for caring about bringing and making everlasting friends. May we out of gratitude of understanding you've made us your friends, that, that we would reach out to others who are presently enemies of yours. By your glorious power, and may you bring them unto salvation. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.